Welcome to Recovery Uncovered, your all things recovery podcast. Recovery Uncovered is produced by MHAB Enterprises, a division of the Northeast Group of Companies located right here in Plattsburgh, New York. I'm your host, Mike Carpenter. Affectionately known as MHAB Mike. And I'm your co-host, Betsy Vicencio. Affectionately known as BV the Normie. We have one goal in these podcasts, and that's not to suck. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. I'm Mike Carpenter, also known as MHAB Mike. This is Betsy Vicenzio, my sidekick, and not sure what she's known as today. Kind of depends on the day. Yeah. This is Recovery Uncovered, episode Friends. Kind, kind of. of. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so today... Betsy and I are going to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a friend, I guess, of somebody. And you know what? I'm not even going to do this. This is Betsy's idea. So if this podcast is terrible, we're going to blame it on Betsy. And at this point, I'm just going to turn it over to Betsy and say, here you go, Betsy. Tell us what we're talking about so today. So let's be honest about this. This is not my idea. This came out of a list that our entire team has put together about topics and suggestions of things that we should discuss. How come I don't have an MHAB mug? Because today? you took yours home. <laughs> no, you told me you were gonna, they were going to be washed, and then I'd have a new one. I and didn't, I didn't take yours home. You took yours home or right. took it away. It's probably in your car in the back seat behind this the right passenger seat. This right here is a depiction of friendship and recovery. Friendship and recovery. You never know what the day is you're going to get. So this came from the list that everybody on our team put together. I happened to select the one because, one, I think it's something that is important. It's important to figure out how, um, how you can be a, a supporter of people in recovery because it can be super excluding to be the person that's not in recovery while you're trying to help people you love or you care about navigate their path. How long do you think it takes to learn how to support somebody in recovery? I think it's a lifetime. Yeah, because learn. you haven't learned in 15 years, <laughs> so it's like, let's take a hell of a lot longer than that. So, Well, that tees up the first question. Tell me, what do you... Uh, <laughs> what, what, what exactly do you think people in recovery need from their non their friends that are not in recovery to be supported? That's a very interesting question. What do what do what do we what do we need? And speaking, I guess, on behalf of the recovery community, <laughs> although I'm certainly not speaking on behalf the of the recovery child community. Of recovery? Just for I'm me, my... you know, um, I don't. I don't know. We'll, del we'll have to delve into that a little bit. But I will tell you that I, I think that the biggest issue that, e that you have with people in recovery, and really, let's talk about early recovery first, because okay. I think they're different. You know, people in early recovery typically come in with a boatload of baggage from their active use. And I, I think that people who are not in recovery have become fed up with people and their behaviors. And it's such a hard thing to delineate between the the illness, which is addiction, and the behaviors that go along with mm -hmm. the illness. And so we try to get kind of the normal world or the non-addicted world to understand that 
you can you can be upset and hold people accountable for the behaviors, but you have to understand that the behaviors happen as a result of the illness. So it's not to excuse the behavior, it's just to have that understanding. And I, I've said this story before, maybe not on a podcast. If you think about somebody that has cancer, nobody, you don't get mad at people that have cancer because typically people that have cancer just have cancer. They don't steal from you. They don't get arrested. They don't. They don't do all of the behaviors that go with you know supporting a habit. Whereas people who are addicts have an addiction, but the behaviors that they do are typically Super volatile and very yeah. dangerous. Yep. So I I think that that's the first probably the first piece, and that's hard because there's that fine line between being understanding what it is that they're going through, but not condoning the behaviors. Like we still have to be responsible for who we are. Like I, I use it, I, I use a phrase often that I'm not, it, what, what I did, addiction for me when I was using explained why I did things, but it didn't excuse the fact that I did them. And, and that's a hard part for people that are not in recovery or not addicted, and people who are in recovery and are addicted to understand. There is, there does have to be accountability. So that's probably one of those huge things um, that comes in there. It's almost like, you know, you love them, but you you love them almost from a distance until they get what they, they get what they need. And, and the problem is that it doesn't happen overnight. So the, the person who's, you know, in the active addiction that goes to treatment comes out, you know, with 30 or 60 days clean, all of a sudden everybody in their family and all their friends aren't just going to say, oh, Mike's Ooh, back and he's him. doing great. Doing They're awesome. going to go, okay, Mike's back and he owes me a thousand dollars that he stole from me and he does it. Like there's, there's a lot of baggage there. So I, I think that that probably is the first piece. I'm not, I don't necessarily know how to do it, but I certainly think that that's a barrier to, to this topic. Let me ask a question about that, and, and it's, it's specific to early recovery, because from the, from the, the person that's... Are you and I friends first? Today? Are we today? We're not. <laughs> I don't so think right. so. Oh, oh, okay. I don't just think so, because I think you're still mad, and uh, okay. we'll just have to figure that out. Okay. Um, I love how it's always me that's mad, or it's well, always, always me that has a problem. at me, you know, about something. And, well, because you, know, you don't compromise. I, it always I has to be Betsy's all way. All the time, you. It's if I give you my opinion about something that doesn't meet your opinion, then you're like offended that I don't meet your opinion. And I think we compromise a significant amount. We just didn't happen to compromise yesterday about the artwork. I think the difference. Is, and I, I think, think that if you, I think at, you and believe, I think that if you looked at what was going on, that there were enough people on the other side that that happened to like the same thing that I liked. I think that you call it compromise. I call it me giving in. <laughs> <laughs> That's typically what happens. So. Just so, okay, we have that out of the way. Now, uh, Here's my question about people in early recovery. Um, there's, there is the piece where um, those of us that are not in recovery are watching people navigate recovery and, and feeling incredibly hopeful that, that this is going to be the time that things are going to go well. And we are trying to get over the, the behaviors, the hurtful behaviors, the things that have happened. Um, but do you, do you think that, do you think that people in recovery are expecting their support system of people not in recovery just to, just to wipe the slate clean? I mean, is that, is that, and it's really a moment, a point of expectation versus reality. Do you think that that's what people in early recovery think they need or, or that's what they want? Well, 
I, I think that you know that that's a hard question to give a simple answer to. Mm-hmm. So I'll tr- I'll try to break it down as simple as possible. I think that when you when you come into recovery, you know, after 30 days of, you know, eating well and sleeping well and talking to a lot of people and, you know, feeling good, like for the first time in your life, you feel good in some number of years, you know, for some people, it's two, three, four years for some, you know, 25. So you you feel better. So I think there's this kind of uh, like almost like fantasy thing, like, okay, my life's good now and everything's going to be perfect and it's, and it's all going to be good. I think that as you go along a little bit in recovery, whatever, you know, method of recovery you're using, you, you begin to learn that the, the wreckage or the damage that you left in your wake is much more significant than I think what you realize when you're, when you're in that first early time. So it's, it's a little bit misleading. Yes, I think when you first get out of rehab at 30 days, I wanted to come back and have everybody love me, everybody forgive me, everybody tell me that I'm wonderful because, you know, I'm sober for 30 days or 60 days. And, and some of that is good, <clears throat> but it has to be tempered with the idea that you still have a lot of things that you have to answer for and do and things like that. So it's not a, it's not a simple um, question. It's a, you know, I, I think it. I can give you a, a specific story about you and I, and I'll talk about your daughter. You know, I was sober. I think twenty two or twenty three years, the first time I brought your daughter to rehab. Sounds about right. And I think that what I recognized in talking to your daughter, actually, it was the second trip because that was when I went alone with her. I I recognized in watching that from your perspective and from her perspective, how much actual damage I had done to my family. And I have long since, you know, squared up with my family and done all the, you know, the the stuff that I was supposed to do, I think, so that I have good family relationships. But at 23 or 24 years into recovery, it brought to a different level how much damage I had actually done. In, because I now saw it through sober eyes, through a kind of friend of mine, and uh, and and her daughter who was in. Day. So I, I got to see it from a different level. So I think that we, as the people who you know battle this illness and and get better, we learn as time goes on things that I don't I don't think it was possible for me to recognize at 30, 60, 90 days, even a year, how much damage I had actually done. Not that I wanted to hide. I just didn't recognize it. Like I knew it was bad, but I don't think I recognized that. And I think the other piece to that is, you know, you and I had been working together for seven or eight years by then, and you were a little bit invested in Bridget as just her own yeah. person too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it I, it was really personal for you. Yeah. And, uh, and thankfully you, you know, you were there to really help navigate, which were just some Frightening, frightening times for, so I, I for think me that, yeah, and for so, her, I think, too. Yeah, absolutely. And and so I think that it's this kind of, it's almost like you're, you're taking, and we're kind of talking a little bit about family, and I think at some point we'll bring somebody on from one of the programs that, you know, the programs yep, that talk just about idea. family because I think that they bring a very unique perspective that I don't even, you know, that I don't bring because they're the people who are actually living with it. But I, I think that it's almost like, you have a relationship with somebody for all these years that they're in active use, and then it's almost like you're just starting a brand new relationship again. Like that's what, it's It's like, okay, we're going back to ground zero and we're starting over, albeit ground zero is ground zero plus all this extra stuff that's right. been behind it. Right. You know, there's a, so there's a difference, and maybe you have it on your questions, that there's a difference between that and then new friendships. Like if you think about you and I, we met, <clears throat> although I've known you probably all the time that I've been in recovery, um, 
we we really met and started to get to become friends when I was in recovery and had been in recovery for a long time. So there's there's two different things that we're probably talking about today. One is when somebody's in early recovery, and then one is, you know, how do you be a friend to somebody that's just in recovery later on and does it matter? Um, is that on your list or is that not? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think some absolutely some version of that. And I think that there, you know, when you don't come to a relationship with baggage, I do think, I, I love it, that you have to figure out how you do at some point reset the relationship so that you don't carry any of the resentment from right. both ends, right? right. The people yeah. that are in recovery and the people that are not trying to navigate a future. And I think that's one of the really refreshing things for many people that go into recovery and get involved with a program and get a, a new set of 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 people in their support system. They're familiar with the type of baggage, but they may or may not have been party to it. And so I think that gives you kind of almost instantly, um, I think, an understanding as well as this group of people that don't don't judge you or criticize you because they weren't necessarily victim to it, but are familiar. Is that that factual about... And I think when you when we get to the other part talking about just being friends with people in recovery, that's different. But when you go, when you think about addiction is now studied as a family illness. And and I think that that's hard for a lot of people who aren't the addict or, or the alcoholic. Because what do they're, you mean by that? Well, because they're going, well, wait a minute, I'm... I'm living right. I do what I'm supposed to do. It's that person who has the problem. They need to go take care of their problem and then come back and join the family. And there's there's validity to that. <clears throat> However, what you begin to realize is that the family adjusts the way that their behaviors are to be able to deal with the person who's in active addiction. So they almost, without even knowing, I don't want to say become sick, but their behaviors change. The way that they do things around that person or with that person is different than they normally would with everybody else. And a lot of that is just because they don't know how to deal with, you know, they don't know how to deal with that person. Are you speaking about codependent traits, um, you know, when you have to accommodate somebody's... Uh... Yeah, so if you're, think of, if you're, if you're like a, a parent and you have two children that are kind of young and, and you're married to somebody who's in active addiction, what winds up happening is you may not necessarily want to end your relationship, but you start doing more of the parenting stuff that really should be shared. You start doing more of those things to cover for the person. You right. start, And it, it really is. And then so now the person comes out and they're sober and they want back into just the regular life. And you're like, no, that's not the way I've it works. This, this is I've been doing this yeah. for 20 years yeah. while you were out doing. So there's it, it's such an enmeshed thing when it's people that are family members that there's so much work to be able to do. And, and I'm excited. And we have, you know, obviously somebody who works here and I think we'll probably have his wife on who's a. Uh, you know, active member of one of the, you know, 12-step programs for family members. And she does a great job of explaining what it's about and how it really is more about the things that she does to change herself as opposed to trying to get him to be different. Like, you never learned that with me. You're always trying to get me to be different. You never <laughs> learned that it's really, you know, the things that you should change to be a better friend. So that's, oh. I guess, one of the things we're going to talk about. Really? Like, you know, I'm looking about forward talking to, to talking yeah, about yeah, what you think I need to change to be a better friend I can friend certainly to tell you because, today if you'd like me to. Because my, my, my point one that I thought, and I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are for, and, and I believe that um, you can't love somebody to get well, but you can keep showing up. Now, you know, you know me, and I, I have always, I want to love people to the point that I can 
fix them, help them, change them. I mean, I don't know. God, it annoys the hell out of uh, me. Like, just stop it already. <laughs> but you love it that I bring nothing but love to the table with you. But <laughs> you and my wife, like my <laughs> wife too, like they're the most loving people. How did I wind up with these people? They're the most loving people in the world that I wound up because with. Because you're like, a lucky you know, man. And even amidst all of the walls that you put up around it, the other part to this sentence, but you can keep showing up, right? Even though, even though I can't love my daughter to the place that I could make her well. It wasn't my love that was going to change her, fix her, make her better. It's not my love for you that's going to help you through your hard times. Yeah, but this, I think it helps that I keep showing up. Yeah, like this, I don't I don't stop showing up to be in your life or to be in her life or to you know This I, goes back to the 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 piece that we were first talking about, the the whole behavior, the the illness piece. It it is. You don't you know you hope that the people that are in the in the family or in the friend the close friendship circle never stop loving the person that's causing all this damage but you do have to set some boundaries and draw some lines in the sand you know i'll give you a, a great story about my father you know and everybody knows obviously my father owns the business and we've been in business with him for years and and he uh, you know he's the guy who brought me to rehab back in 1989 and and i think it was probably a year before rehab and and remember People like me are very manipulative. We're very good at it. Like we make great salespeople and things like that because we just have <laughs> this ability to, to get what we want to serve our need. And so, you know, I, I abused my parents. You know, my parents went through a divorce and, and, you know, I was able to manipulate and get what I wanted. And, and I think the last time that I called my father and asked him for money, he said no. And, uh, you know, I was in a bad spot. I'm about to be homeless. I owe drug dealers money. I mean, I, it was a really bad time. And <clears throat> he wouldn't give me money. And he had always given me money in the past when I needed it. And I remember being so angry about that and angry about it even into recovery for a number of years that he, it's like he didn't help me. He didn't like he love me. Down That's right. In, your, in, your right. Time, you framed in my it time he, of need, he let, you he down let me your, down in yeah. my time of need. Yeah. And that was probably one of the great catalysts to get me to go to rehab. And ironically, when I was ready to go to rehab, it was him that I called to say, you know, will you help me? So almost in this kind of uh, paradoxical way, I I knew, like logically, I could get what he was trying to do. He was trying to say to me, I'm not going to help you continue to kill I'm yourself, but I'm going to be there for you when you need me, when you're really ready to change your life. And, you know, he came down, you know, he and Mary came down and got me for rehab. And my, my mother, you know, Barbara also was involved in this. So it's not, you know, I'm not giving, <clears throat> I did the same things to my mother and my mother probably wasn't even as tough as my father. So it was, you know, there's a lot of that stuff that goes into it. And, and so I think that you have to be able to, to, love the person and always be there for them, but there do have to be some boundaries. And it's it's kind of like the tough love, you know, posture. Like, and that kind of gets a bad rap because tough love doesn't mean, no, I'm never gonna help you. It It's really about setting boundaries and saying, this is what I'm willing to do for you. This is what I'm, you know, how I'm willing to help you, but this is what I'm willing not to do. And, and that's a, that is a, that's a hard thing for anybody to it do. It is incredibly uh, yeah, hard. Yeah. I remember Bridget and I at one point post um, during recovery, she, she said, she said, I remember when you, st I don't know, something about I didn't continue to give her money because I think that money was going to some really bad things, but I continued to pay her cell phone bill. And she goes, and I know you did that just so that you could always, 
I could always get in touch with you and you could always get in touch with me. And, and that that was, you know, that was a way for me to stay connected, for me to help with trying to figure out how to set boundaries. It's a it's a it's an incredibly challenging place to be as the, the the parent or the support person when you're watching somebody navigate that path, figuring out what are those what are those boundaries. You don't want to push your your family member so far away that you lose them. But you also don't want to continue to, you know, to to, to foster the, you know, the, the, the fund or foster the, the you know, the it's almost like and, 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 and this is probably a bad analogy because I'm really not comparing people that have an addiction issue to, you know, homeless people, because everybody that has addiction doesn't become homeless. But, you know, if you're in a big city for the most part and, and there are homeless people on the street that are, you know, asking for money and and that's fine and people give them money and I've given them money in the past. But ironically, the better thing to probably do would say, hey, let me bring you to a hotel, get your room for a night, get you a meal, you know, or let me bring you to a restaurant and buy you a meal and sit with you and have a cup of coffee and talk about what's going on and see if we can get you some help, as opposed to just throwing $4 in their bucket. Because oftentimes in their position in life right then, they're not able to take that $4 and use it to get out of the trouble that they're in. You know, we're the same way. Like, if you give me $20 and say, I want you to make sure that you eat, like, just logic tells you that I'm I may eat something, but I'm going to use the lion's share of that $20 to be able to continue to get high. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of it comes in. And it's all about those boundaries and what I'm willing to do. I think that leaving a cell phone, you know, paying a cell phone for your daughter is... Personally, I think it's a great idea. Gives you the ability to communicate with her for now. She may use that for some untoward reasons and things, but so I think that all of those things are the the boundaries that we set up, and they're unique for every person and every family. There's not a clear cut, you know. There's not a this is how you do it. Like everybody's situation is a little bit different, and that's what makes this so difficult. It was uh, your story about about homelessness. You know, we don't have a lot of unsheltered homeless people in Plattsburgh, so we don't we don't have it as visible as there are other areas. Bridget was in Portland for uh, for the better part of five and a half years, and I remember one day we were walking down the street, and and there is a significant number of of unsheltered homeless people in in downtown Portland, and um, I watched Bridget just she she didn't give money she just stopped and she gave a couple of minutes of her time just to have a conversation and uh, and then after she had a conversation I remember one guy she you know she did she gave him a couple of bucks to you know and said please go have a cup of coffee and it, it was a kindness that um, touched my heart and and it gave me a kind of a new framework to to think about how do you support people that are, you know, in recovery from whatever they're recovering from? What is it that the, the person that's not in the middle of that situation, how do you how do you how do you manage it? Because there are people, friends of people in recovery that you have no idea how to approach them. What subjects are are good to talk about? Can we go out to dinner? Can if we're having dinner and you're in recovery and you're an alcoholic, can I have a, you know, can I have a beer? I mean, these are you you you, you feel like you're walking on eggshells oh, and we so went, Yeah, we yeah, and in early recovery, you go through this with people. Like if you know you're going over to Thanksgiving dinner at somebody's house and you got out of rehab 60 then people are like, you know, well we have some other people coming who want some wine. Are you okay with having wine? And, you know, I'm of the, and there's multiple schools of thought about this. There are people think differently about it. You know, for me, I have a problem with drugs and alcohol. 
other people don't. Other people have the right to do that. I don't, like I'll go to, if, if you were retiring, like, are you retiring soon so I can get rid of you? Is <laughs> so, that happening so soon can so I can be done with you? Control so over if you were, that goes on. If you, yeah. were if you were retiring and you were having a party at a bar, I would come to your party at the bar and I'd have a ginger because ale and I'd friends. hang out. That's right. And I'd hang out for a few hours and, and do stuff like, or because I'm happy you're retiring. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of depends on, depends the, day. on the day. Depends on the day. Mm -hmm. I would come. Now, I've also been you know, sober and in recovery for 30 years, so I'm comfortable doing that. It would be more difficult for me to do at 30 days you know, in recovery because it's still so prevalent and the draw to it is still there. But it really is up to us, those of us in recovery, to learn how to live around uh, the things that go on in the world that other people have the right to do. They, you have the right to do that if you want to. And, and who am I to say that you should alter your lifestyle to meet what I need to have. And and now, so I, I guess that it's again, that always that fine line between what's right and, and what's wrong. I don't put myself in positions to be around drunk people in large part because I don't like being around drunk people. I, I used to think I was funny when I was drunk and I, was, I wasn't that funny. I was, it was, it just, I don't enjoy it. So I, I don't go, but that doesn't mean I can't go to dinner with somebody and they can have a, you know, a glass of wine. I went, on a business meeting in Montreal years ago. I don't even think you were with the company yet. And uh, we went out to lunch with uh, this couple who owned a business. And my God, they drank about four bottles of wine. And you at know, lunch? at lunch, and I'm, I'm trapped in this business <laughs> meeting at lunch with these people who are starting to get loaded. I'm like, how are they gonna even drive back to there? Like, I'm like, this is, you know, crazy. And so that got to be a little uncomfortable for me, sure. but they're not friends of mine. They didn't, they don't understand. And I'm not gonna ask them to alter their lifestyle. Um, so yeah, there's, there, that certainly is, a, is, you know, a part of it. People think that they have to change so that, you know, they're helping us. And I, I think probably of all the things that I would say about this, we're, we're, people like me are abnormal in the sense of I cannot introduce alcohol or drugs into my system. I, don't, I have no governor once it's in my system to be able to stop. I have to prevent it before I start doing it. I don't have the ability to do it in moderation. Like I, I, I just don't have that. But that's on me to do. That's not on other people to protect me. Like quite truthfully, I can go out today in Plattsburgh, New York, and find anything that I want. I still know how to do it. I, it would take me virtually no time to be able to do that. There's nothing that you could do, my father could do, my wife could do, that anybody could do that would stop me if that obsession is inside me. Like there isn't anything that you, there's no amount of love you can do. There's no, it just doesn't, that's the, I think, the hardest part. And I would envision for people like you or my father, my family, any of those people, there has to be some powerless feeling to that, that I can't, how is it that I can't help that? Yep. How, how, how am I not able to, I've been able to help them with everything else that's ever gone on in their life, but I can't help them with this. How is that possible? And it, it's probably the great question. It is, it is the hardest piece, you know, you, you think or as the as the support person, the family member, you think that that just your pure love and your desire to help somebody shouldn't that just be powerful enough to stop them 
from that moment to help them. And, and, and it, it's, it's, it is that figuring out how you take your hands off the wheel and say, I can't love them to get well, but I can just keep showing up and figuring out how to be, be around them so that, so that I can figure out how to, how to support them. I think people navigating recovery and people that are trying to be friends or allies to people in recovery are both on a journey trying to figure out how to do it best. And it's not perfect. Listen, you and I, in the 15 years we've known each other, there are good days, there are bad days, um, where I just don't get you and you just don't get me for whatever reason. Well, um, I get you all the time. You don't I just, get me you know, I know what time. it's about. But <laughs> I, uh, you know, the other thing I think, I, I want to go back to the piece that you brought up about the homeless. And I don't know exactly how we got there. But, you know, nobody that I've met in the years that I've been in recovery says that when they were out there in active addiction, that, that that's the way they wanted to live. Like, it's not, I didn't want to be that person. That's not who I want. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't want to be able to go out and have fun, be able to go out and get drunk with the people, go to a concert and get high. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we don't have the ability to govern that. I don't have the ability to go to a, you know, Guns N' Roses show tonight, get drunk and high, have a great time, and then tomorrow get up and have my life be normal again. That's not the way that, that, our, that people like me, my life works. And so we always wind up in that really bad, dark place, and we don't want to be there. We're not sitting there going, oh, this is enjoyable. You know, that guy on the street with a bottle of wine in, his, in the brown paper bag is you know, was not four years old going, I hope when I'm 30 that I'm, you know, sitting on a street with a coat and a bottle of wine. That's not, but when the addiction takes over, there is no stopping it. It's not, it, it, it's so hard for people to understand that these aren't choices. It's not a choice that I'm making to do this. It's not, you know, this is what the disease of addiction does. And that's the reason why we do so many harmful things to be able to continue to get high. I think that that was one of the other items that uh, that I, I was thinking about for people that are uh, trying to be a friend to people in recovery is fighting the stereotypes about that. And 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 I think when you spoke to that, um, I felt like there was something in here that that uh, that actually said that, um, you know, understanding. Um, well, maybe it's not. It wasn't. In, it wasn't in this. But I think that there's a there's a lack of understanding that. Addicts didn't choose it, right? I, I don't. I yeah. don't. I don't believe, based on all I've come to learn and know, that people that are actually addicts chose that behavior. Yeah, the, you know, and that 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 comes down, and we're going to bring some people in here that are professionals who yep. work in the field, who are you know educated in this, and and they're going to talk about that. But I will tell you that just you know anecdotally in the world of recovery, there's there's even there, there's even factions of people in recovery that believe differently about this. You know, I'm one of those people who believes that I, I don't have the ability to not introduce drugs and alcohol in my system if I don't keep my street clean. Like, so in other words, for me, I'm not after 30 years just going to get up one day and decide that I'm going to go and just drink. Like that's not going to, I believe for me, that's not going to happen. There are other people who believe that they could get up and just go get drunk. For me, I don't believe that. So I'm not arguing whether that's right or wrong. I'm just telling you my point. For me, it's going to happen over a period of time where my behaviors that are not necessarily the clean behaviors start to go 
downward. Like, so I'm going to start lying and skimming and cheating a little bit and doing all of these things that are gray area. And, and that doesn't mean that I live this pure, like I'm not pure, I'm not perfect. We all, you know, we're human beings, we live. But what it is, is I have to try to remain with an understanding that things like dishonesty and underhandedness and those things ultimately lead me from here to here. And when I get here and I can't deal with the guilt and shame and the, the kinds of things that go on for the behaviors that I've had, then the only option to feel better is to be able to you know, go out and get high. That's what makes me feel better, gets rid of the guilt and all the stuff that I'm carrying around. So the, the people that I associate with in recovery, it's so important to try to live right. And, you know, right is different for everybody. I guess you could call it a moral code, whatever it is. You know, you try to do the things that are right. Because in all the years I've been here, when I've met with people who have relapsed after a period of time, when they come back and start recovery again, they can look back and go, oh yeah, two years ago I cheated on my wife and then I did this and then I was padding my expense account for my business and then I, you know, and, and all of these little things that in and of themselves didn't seem like big things ultimately snowballed to the point where it's like, I can't live with this kind of inner turmoil, so I have to not you know, not have this, and how do I not have this? And I not have this by going out and getting high. So that's that's kind of what what it is. I don't. I'm not just going to wake up one day and go. I want to go throw my life away again. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? I think the piece about choice, though, like you, you never, as a parent, you don't ever want your child to choose to be an addict. But I don't think anybody chooses. I think that you know there are people that can introduce drugs or alcohol into their system, take it or leave it, and there are people that can't. So the, for me, when I say people don't choose that, I don't think you get a choice on, on whether or not you have that predisposition to have drugs and alcohol take you down a bad path or that you can, you know, you have that predisposition that you can take it or leave it. And and so that's the piece of choice I yeah. think that yeah. that I don't think people have. But I think you, you know, you're right. I think that there's a, a moment where you can choose to take the drink or take the drugs knowing what you know about your system. Once yeah, I mean, it, it's such a, this is a great debate. And I will tell you that we will bring a lot of people in here and this debate will rage on and nobody will be able to actually answer it. I mean, at, at its core, when the time comes that I decide or, or that I drink again, let's say, Yes, physically, like I'm not just sitting here and all of a sudden a, a bottle from there comes over and goes down my, I have to physically mouth. be the person who great, puts my hand in it and, and, you know, brings it up to my mouth. So, so I guess in and of its, in its purest binary form, yes, it is a choice that I make at that time to do it. But I, the point that I'm making is by the time I've gotten to the point where I'm reaching for that Budweiser can, it it isn't a choice anymore. Like all the other stuff is gone and that's just me saying this is the end result of I can't live yeah. like this anymore. So that I think is the great debate that you have, sure. you know, with regards to with regards to this. Not nothing more, nothing less than that. I think we agree about that, believe it or not though. We do agree on that? We agree on a few things. Let me ask you another question. Yes. Do you um does it help People in recovery, um, when their support system, especially people not in recovery, are are, are setting um, healthy life examples at all. Is there any? Is there any? Does that help when you see, you know, your family? So you know that that's that's interesting. I, I think that at its core, yes, it's probably helpful. I, I think that 
when I got out of rehab in 1989, my family, albeit, had been through its own problems like a lot of families do, and we're a blended family. You know, dad's remarried, mom was with somebody else. So, you know, there was there was that. But my family all around was incredibly supportive of what I was doing. They, and most of my family is pretty healthy. Like, they live pretty normal, everyday lives. And, and so I think for me, that was helpful. But I think that the other problem is we feel so bad about ourselves when we finally decide to stop. Like we understand all the things that we did. We understand, you know, the life we lived out there. And so there's almost this double whammy of, well, as long as I surround myself with other people who are as screwed up as I am, then I don't feel so bad about myself. But if I'm going to the family function where <clears throat> I'm the guy who can't pay my bills, I'm the guy who can't do this, and all the rest of my family is doing well, and we're loving my little sister because she's college educated and this and that, it almost becomes like a double whammy. Like, yep, I, I suck because of what I did, <laughs> and now the rest of my family's doing great, so I suck even more. So, and not that you want them to fail but yes there's that there certainly is that <laughs> that feeling but i think if i had to choose between having a family and friends that were successful and supportive as opposed to a family and friends that were not successful and not necessarily supportive i certainly would take the former i would take the family right. being right. successful and helpful because i can get over that other stuff so i yeah. you know i think that it is but there is that that part of it like we we just feel bad about, you know, and like none of us come in going, oh yeah, I feel great about the way that I lived. You know, right. I, like that's not what typically happens. So that's a, I, I think that's, I think that's, yeah, I think that's important. <laughs> Can I tell you the other thing about being a friend to people in recovery? Sure. This is one of the, like, so we're doing this podcast and this podcast about recovery and I'm in recovery and I'm, I'm a, business person here in Plattsburgh and I've had some successes and we've done some good things and and all that so I'm out there in the you know forefront of recovery I guess and I put myself out there so this is all you know my own decisions and <clears throat> I like when people recognize me not as somebody in recovery like part of part of it is that we I have this illness you, you're a cancer survivor right yep I you am. don't I don't think that you love only being known as a cancer survivor. You're a cancer survivor, you're a mom, you're a halfway decent CFO, you're a um wow. you know, you're a you're a Harsh. you're a lot of Jackass. you're a lot of things that you wear a lot of hats, so you have a lot of these things. Sometimes people in recovery it, it's such a prevalent talked about thing that that's what people know you as. They don't know you as anything else. And so I think for those of us that have been clean for a lengthy period of time, we just want to be considered like normal. We we know how to live in the world. Like we know how to function and just kind of live every day. So when you're you and it and it's funny because we can also go the other way where we're like like I think the part about being manipulative is ingrained. So it it never actually leaves me. So I have to stop myself from doing it. Like, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say, and I'm not doing a very good job of explaining it, is that by being that person in recovery, I also know 
I can manipulate and get a little more probably love and care and compassion from people by showing that I'm not okay. And, oh, yeah. and so, you know, I, I, oh, yeah, I, so we, you know, there's, you have all of these things that go on with regards to it. Now, wait a minute. I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm surrounded by people who don't cut me any slack with that. That when I'm having a bad day, I don't get any love. I get nothing. It's like, you know, I just get shit on all my life. But so, so, so I guess there's, you know, it's a two-sided coin. There's so a, that's funny. Because when we first started working together, remember, I didn't have any idea. I didn't know you when you were not in recovery. I didn't, I didn't watch you through any of the early stages of your recovery. I mean, you were 15 years in when we started working together. So I didn't know you as anything except the guy that you were. And so I didn't have any preconceived notions about, about you or, or being an addict or even being a person in recovery. It took a few, it took some time with you and I spending together i just thought you I, were, was, I thought you were moody and i was <laughs> you know? yeah, he's a moody guy isn't he <laughs> i had I was, no idea i was quite a bit healthier 15 years ago <laughs> than i am now and i'm not sure what that says about you because you're one of the constants over oh, the last 15 years so i was i would like you know, to I was pull well the audience for people that knew us ago. back 15 years ago and it We've is, come a long way in, it is, in, in our friendship we have come a long way in 15 years we have and uh you know, I, I think that as sad as it is to say, your daughter becoming, you know, having the problems that she had probably helped a lot in, you know, both in our friendship. Like sure. it, it helped that it was, uh, I mean, that's, that's a sad way to say it because I'm not happy that, you know, what happened yeah. in her life. Um, but it certainly did, you know, explain and start to teach us both, you know, some other stuff. And yep, I, think, I think, so. you know, we are, people like me have this amazing ability or unique ability to be really great and really bad. You know, it's that extreme stuff. Like, like I know when I'm on that I can do just about anything that I put my mind to. And I, and I also know that when I'm not on, I can go out of my way to drag as many people down into the sewer <laughs> with me, you know, for, and it's, it, and it's, and that's, and it and it's that stuff that I have to work on constantly, and and you know we we never get perfect at it, and it it's just stuff. And and I know from having friends in recovery that that's not abnormal. I, I mean, I, Telly, Telly, right? Is that am I right on? Yeah. Yeah. So Telly's another one in recovery who you know goes through the same kind of stuff. That it's it's so. I think that yes, that's where that constant work comes in. Where you know. I, it just is, the mind works differently for me. Like I look at people like you and go, you know, how do you have one glass of wine? How do you know, or two, like, how do you, who does that? Like I'm over here going, what the hell's the matter with you? Like, why would you, why would you want to do that? Like you have a bottle of vodka in your house that's been there for five years. That's a third drink. I'm like, that wouldn't last five days in my house. Like I don't, you know, it's foreign to me sure. to, to get that. So you know, all of those things are what make us different. But one of the things that I've learned in all the years I've been in recovery is that human beings 
at our core, we're way more alike than we are different. And, you know, I'm afflicted with, you know, this illness and, and I get that. But you know what? Everybody has insecurities. Everybody has uncomfortable things. Everybody, we've been saying this for a long, everybody's recovering from something, yeah, they are. whatever it is. And, and yeah. you know, the more that you can acknowledge that and be open about it and talk about it, the easier it is to be able to, to deal with. You know, one of the things that, like, when I go to, and I know that it happens, you know, once every couple of years where I go to a dark place. Um, <laughs> and I, are once, you, every, once every couple of weeks, did whatever. you say? Or? So, and you know, when I, when I go to that dark place, when I ultimately get out of it, I get out of it by doing the same stuff that I always do, which is I call some friends, I have some conversations about what's going on, I vent about how angry I am at somebody or how somebody hurt my feelings or whatever, and I feel better. And so I always say to myself in those moments that, okay, so next time I'm not going to wait three days. I'm going to do it on the first day. But the next time when it happens on that first day, I don't, it's like, I, I'm not ready to do it on the first day. I have to wait until the, the third day. Like, right. Nope, exactly right. So it, it, it is, it angry. is, it is a very, uh, it's, it's just as a very, you know, it's just the way that, uh, you know, people are. And it, Yeah. I think that, that that particular piece, both there's a connection that happens from people that are trying to support people in recovery where you begin to understand the ebbs and the flows and not judge or criticize, but just try to figure out how you how you put yourself around them. I can't well, I can't I can't love you through your darkness well, and neither can Liz, because trust me, both of us have talked about it how we've tried and, and, it's, and, mad, we can't. and it's maddening for people like me because I have to be around you and you present this image of that you're perfect. In fact, I think years ago I nicknamed you Little LMP. Miss Perfect, right? <laughs> LMP, because you act like you're all perfect. But those of us that know you well know I that there's don't. no validity to that. But you do present this perfect image. So you just think because like I'm would, always happy that that, things, that makes would me say think to, I'm perfect. What I would I'm say to you happy. is maybe you have some work to do on yourself so you could get you know, come to terms does with work, that piece. Does work mean that I can't be happy all the time? Is that, is that, I mean, because I really think that of all the things that you're really angry at me about is the fact that I'm really just genuinely and authentically pretty doggone happy every day. Happy phony. Happy phony. I'm trying to I'm weigh which one phony. of those. Really so I wanted, so I wanted to circle back to, to this. So uh, item four was connection about how to be a friend or an ally for people in recovery is finding some type of a connection. And, and you spoke about that moment in time when Bridget and Bridget was really in, in her place and, and how you helped us navigate and get her into recovery. And it really did. It connected us in an incredibly special way because you became such a resource for her and, quite frankly, such a resource for me because it was completely uncharted territories for me and, you know, clearly for her, but also, I think, for you because, you, you I mean, it was, Listen, it was it intimate was, for you. It was cool as hell because <laughs> at 23 years sober, I thought... You know, I hadn't lived the lifestyle very much lately, so I remember the day when I had to go over and confront the drug dealer who she owed oh, money to, and I was so excited about doing that. I'm like, this is like the old days. I'll go over and I'll put this guy in his place. That was that was like, and I love because you were like you're like, like this big guy, and I mean, I'm sure <laughs> so he was tough. Fun. And I bet there were, I mean, there was probably some weapons in that apartment. Oh, yeah. And you went in, and you, you know, you 
that was that cool. little guy the what for, yeah. man. I love <laughs> that. that. that and you're the... like, because we were talking, you're like, okay, I'm going to offer him this. I'm going to offer him. But if he does this, I'm going to kick his ass. <laughs> that yeah. was great. Defending we the honor of so my. <laughs> that, was like, that was the highlight of my time. I'm like, hurry up, Bridget. Go to rehab so I can go confront your drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tell you. We laughed about that at some really days. But do you know days. that that brings up an incredibly valid point about, you know, one of the things, and and I'm, I don't know if I'm different than other people, but that lifestyle piece has the part of is the part of me that's never actually gone. Like it, like that thrill, I, is there the, that, thrill the, the, the thrill, the, the thrill piece, the 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 type A personality, the risk taker, the you know that that. Like I don't want to drink and I don't want to get high. All that stuff is behind me. But I do love the 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 lifestyle that went with it. That life in the fast lane kind of, you know, fast cars and money and guns. It's cool. Like it just was, you know, and it, it's so funny because that's never left me. And I don't obsess over doing it. And I don't want to go back to it. But it is like if you ask Lizzie, we'll be sitting home and I'll be like, you want to watch a movie? And she'll be like, all right, which drug shoot 'em up movie are we watching tonight? Because that's, you know. You know, Leaving Las Vegas for the seventy fifth time, <laughs> right? Like it's you know, so it's it's interesting that that's never left me. <laughs> so um, let's talk about um, small goals and reinforcement. Um, and once again, establishing what people in recovery need from their from you know, or or how to be a friend to people in recovery. Is there is there anything you could speak to that talks well, about I, like small small goals and the type of reinforcement that's positive? Well, I, I think the the thing to remember is that if, if you think of it the way that I do about recovery being kind of a, a, a it's a journey, not an event. You know, I, I listened to a speaker talk one time and she had, you know, 30, 35 years and, and she said she was talking to new people at a, at a meeting and she said, um, might have even been at a rehab and she said, if I could give you my 35 years today, I wouldn't do it. And, you know, so the newcomers are like, well, that's shitty. Like, mm. you know, why wouldn't you do that? And, and she said, because I wouldn't want to rob you of all the great stuff that's going to happen over the next 35 years of your life. And, and I think that that's a profound statement that, you know, recovery is a, a journey. It's not, there's not a destination. I'm not going to get somewhere, you know, until the day that I die, hopefully, you know, still sober. And so I think that you have to look at it and say, my loved one or somebody that I know got out of rehab and they got 60 days clean. And so now all the rules are going to change and everything's great and we're back to normal and I have my kid back or my husband back or whatever. And it isn't like that. It's this kind of gradual rebuilding of the relationship. It's the gradual, you know, dropping of boundaries. It's the gradualness that goes, that goes with it. So I think that that's probably the best piece of advice. You know, you don't, when when you're first in recovery, you want to just fix everything now. Like, let me just fix everything now. Like, I need to get a job. I need to pay my bills. I need to make up with my spouse. I need to get my kids back in my life. Like, I need to get all of these things back. And And I've seen so many people over the years have not be able to make it because they become so focused on those things that they forget that the most important thing is that I get up every day and say, okay, what am I doing today? What's the best I can do? How am I going to do this? And, you know, somebody said to me the other day, because I have like, you know, 11,220 days, you know, continuous sober and, and somebody, somebody said to me, 
Um, well, you can do it online. You can. Do, oh, okay. There's a sobriety you calculator that, that does it, does it online. For you. Because, and I, I know that because somebody announced at one time that they had this many days, and I challenged them on it because I said I don't think you counted leap years, because I went <laughs> and counted their leap years, so they were off by they were off by some number of days because they hasn't counted leap years, because that's the kind of guy I could be. You just want to point out that you might be incorrect. And you say you're not binary. Um, <laughs> you know, so, um, <laughs> so. And somebody asked me, you know, how did you, you know, wow, that's amazing. How'd you get that? And I said, a day at a time. Like, that's how I got it. I just, it's like, you know, I didn't get, I didn't wake up one day and have 11,000 days. And somebody that's a good friend of mine, you know, passed away a number of years ago, used to say, you know, we live in the McDonald's generation now where I want to be able to go to the drive-thru. I want to be able to get a cheeseburger and order fries in 10 years of sobriety. And it doesn't work that way. It doesn't, you, you, you get it, you know, a day at a time. And so it's the same thing with having friendships or any of that stuff. How do you do it? You just do it a day at a time. We get up and we try to live, you know, as best we can day at a time. And, uh, and that sounds so kind of cliche and pointless, but realistically it is all that we have. We can, you're not doing it. I can't live in tomorrow or next week. doesn't mean I can't plan and think about things. And it's the same thing with, I can continue to live in the past of what I used to be, but what's that doing for me? What's that doing for you? It's not doing anything. It just, it is what it is. It happened. Now we're going to figure out how to move on. So I would, I would offer this advice to anybody that's, you know, friends with people in recovery. This is just a day at a time. It's not dramatically different than building any other relationship. You know, if you if you met somebody that wasn't in recovery and today was the first day you met them, you're not going to open your house up to them and open all. You, you're just not going to do that. So don't do it with people in recovery. You're going to build that. You know, you're going to build a relationship. Trust happens over, you know, a number of years, you know, those kinds of things. So or that, regaining trust advice. happens over years. 100%. takes a long time. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of pieces. One, I, I, in terms of small goals and reinforcement, I love trying to celebrate my daughter's um, anniversaries of her recovery. I love to be present for that if, if I can at any point in time. But for me, that's a... That, that's really, I want to honor that moment that it feels like such an accomplishment. I want to make sure that I celebrate that for, for her many because of I think us it's in, important. For many of us in recovery, that day probably even is more important than our actual birthday. Like yeah. it just, it, it just means more. It's more to, it, I hate to say that because it's, you know, my birthday is important too. But on that, yeah. on that recovery day, you get the chance to reflect and look back and see where you've gone. I mean, you guys got me this sweatshirt for you know, my 30 year anniversary, which happened last year, and you know, my wife and your daughter, who's not in recovery, put together this amazing, you know, video tribute with friends of mine and all that. And, and that stuff is great. You know, you don't realize how reinforcing that is. It's nice to hear, you know, I don't want people to always tell me how wonderful I am or how great I'm doing or any good, of that I'm stuff. I'm doing and, a good job holding up my end on You do a really good <laughs> job of, you know, holding up your head. But it is nice at certain times to be able to realize that people actually are, you know, proud of some of the things that you've accomplished and are, you know, happy for you that you have your life together and that you've done that stuff. And so, you know, I, I do believe that, you know, celebrating those anniversaries is, is cool. I do a, you know, on my anniversary day, I do a, I do the drive-by. Mm-hmm. I get a you know good cigar and uh, I drive around and I go to all the places in at least in Plattsburgh that I used to live. Although on one of my anniversary, right up in my twenty year, I actually drove down to Connecticut. 
and went oh, back really? and looked at the places. Yeah. But, you know, I drive around and I just reflect and I, and I don't do that to go back and live in that. I do that to remind myself of, you know, that's where I was. That's what my life, you know, had become. And, you know, that was the, the direction that my life was going in. And, and today it's different. And, you know, I like the overall direction my life's going in today and I like it. And, you know, I'm not, I can be hard, like I can have a hard personality, but at my core, I'm really not that. Like it really is, uh, you know, I'm really sensitive. I'm really, you know, I have a high level of compassion. I like people actually, even though I, I know that. you're going to have to take that out. I cannot say <laughs> on the podcast really that I actually me. like people. I don't think I, I don't do. think I can really do that. Do but like me. Yeah. Not today. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> Some days I do. So yeah, I think that it's important that you just, you, you tread lightly, but don't, don't tread so lightly that you don't become friends. And the other piece is I, I think people in recovery really do like to not be given special treatment either way. Like we don't want to be, you know, overly compensated for because we're in recovery. We don't want special treatment. We also don't want to be looked down upon because we're we just want to we're just people just like everybody else is you know, who are battling something. And it's funny, I know a lot of people in this community who have been sober for a long time who don't publicly acknowledge it to anybody. And that's their, that's their choice. And I don't, I don't necessarily, I think there's probably a variety of reasons. I think there's certainly the judgment piece. I think, I think there's a variety of reasons. And I think that everybody has their own right to do that. And, you know, I would never out somebody. It's kind of like if somebody is, you know, gay, they, they have the right to out themselves when they want to or to not say it. They have every right to live however they want and, and do that. It's the same thing with this. People have the right to be very private about this or not private about this. The, the sad part of it is if more people that are successful, well-adjusted members of society who have battled this don't come out and speak about it, then the stereotypes continue because all you ever see are the arrests in the paper and the people who die of overdoses and that. So we just continue to perpetuate that. So, you know, we're really trying hard to be guarded that we don't out other people, but that those of us that are comfortable are willing to say it's it's okay. I'm in recovery and this is who I am and I do I live a relatively normal life. You know, think about it. Lizzie and I, we don't have kids, but we live in a house. We have two dogs. We like to go to shows, sporting events. We I mean you we travel, do a lot of we do, travel, you do we do things, we yeah. live pretty you just live a, a pretty life. normal life. Yeah. Like it's not we don't you know, we go home, we flip the TV on, we watch a movie like everybody else does, we fight over politics, we you know, just <laughs> I mean we yeah. do the kind of normal stuff that people do, um, albeit that we have this one thing that goes on in our life, which is that we're, you know, we're, we suffer from this disease. I have always said that I give you such great credit for um, you helping to change the narrative in our community when you publicly spoke at that United Way breakfast about your journey um, into recovery. And I think it was, once again, a turning point, uh, a defining moment for this community. And uh, and I was so proud of you the day that you and did that. And I was that. so much better than Billy Jones I know that you day. Were, you like, I kicked that right out of like, so much <laughs> Sorry, Billy. Um, I think we want to get to the wrap up point and and I wanted to share this one last piece that I think for me as a person trying to be both a friend and an ally for people in recovery um, that doesn't come easy look at me doing some work here 
to learn how to really listen. Um, <laughs> I think I think it's an important piece to to being a supporter of people in recovery. Is is you might need to go away for thirty days to learn how to listen. <laughs> to learn how to shut up. Do they have that listening rehab? <laughs> the hardest part is that is that you know you see somebody in crisis or you see somebody in trouble and and you want to love them. You want you want to share all of these things that you think you know that that you think are going to help. Words of wisdom. All, and the reality is, I found that the most. Um, meaningful times that I think I've been a good supporter to people in recovery um, and, a, and a friend to people in recovery is when I've just been present to really just just listen. And, um, and I'm going to say it doesn't come easy to me. So I think, but I think it's an important part. Um, and that if everybody can, uh, that's working to try to support somebody in recovery, to take a moment and figure out how you just, how you engage on that listening level um, really active listening. I think that there's, I think that really, really cool things can happen. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I'll close with this and I think we'll probably wrap up. We, uh, so I get, I work with a lot of people in recovery who come to me and ask me for help and I'll get phone calls from people or somebody and they'll be so angry about something that's going on in their life and they'll rant and rave and, and, and then at the end they'll, I won't have said, you know, 15 words to them and they'll be like, man, Mike, thanks a lot for your help. But it's like, uh, 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 okay, but I didn't really tell you anything. And I've had that same experience. There was, I won't give you the specifics, but there was one night I was, had to do something the next day and I was really amped up about it. And I went to my friend's house and I, for about a half hour. And at the end, I'm like, wow, Dave, thanks so much for helping me. And he's like, I don't think I said anything. <laughs> you know, and it's like, uh, you, you know, you're probably right. Like, I just needed to voice it and I would ultimately come to what I need to do. And, and so I think that you're right, that that whole listening piece and being and being attentive and receptive is a is a huge component of it. So, yeah. well, I know you didn't love having this episode as our episode today, but I think it's important. I think that we need to tell the story on both sides of the recovery journey if we're really going to be a vehicle to helping people navigate. So thank you for um, thank you for indulging me. So on I, this yes, episode. yes, yes, and I think that it's uh, you know the world is a better place when we you know don't look at everybody by what their limitations are in those things, and we look at people by you know what they're doing with their life today, and not necessarily the past. And there's that fine line and that delicate balancing act. And you know I get excited over doing this podcast, and you know when you start to bring some experts in, and we start you know getting some information where they'll be able to you know scientifically tell you why things happen and all that. But at their core, things like this, you know, my my belief about recovery is it's a it's a holistic journey, and and not that there's not medical things that you can do and, and things like that. But in the end, what we're talking about is just being human. And it's, uh, you know, having this relationship with each other that says this is what we're going to do and recognizing that there aren't, you know, places in society where somebody's higher than somebody else or any of that. You know, we in society have done that. But at our core, we're human beings who all struggle with the same things every day. And, you know, the more human we are to each other, the better it will be for everybody, including those of us that are in recovery. So yeah. engaging, the, I think that's I think that's meaningful on so many different levels, on so many different topics. But being able to engage the humanity of another person, irrespective of the journey that they've taken to the point that they are in their life is just it's valuable. And it, and it takes work. It takes all of all of the things we've talked about today to do it really, really well. 
So thank so you. So I, I think that we'll we'll close by I'll tell you that. So I didn't go overly caustic this time. I just have my clean AF, sober AF, and awesome AF shirt you are on. Awesome baby. Little thirty year thing, but uh, maybe I'll get a little more caustic next time. And I, I would remind you to please visit our website, mhab.org. Visit the marketplace. Come on and see what we're doing here. Make suggestions. Tell us what you think. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, we can probably we'll put something together and wing it. So we're, we're looking for that. And, you know, we've struggled with coming up with a way to close this. Um, so I, I think that maybe what I'll start doing is give you one quote every week to kind of think about. And I'll pull from the old, uh, some of the old quotes that I have, and some of these might be good and some of these might not be so good. So the one that came to mind today as we wrap this up is, if you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. Ooh, I like that one. So that's about change. So thanks, hope you enjoyed, and uh, we'll see you next us. week. COVID out. Thanks for joining us today at Recovery Uncovered. No matter where you are in your recovery journey, or if you're supporting the recovery journey of a loved one, just know today is the first day of the rest of your life. Visit our website at mhab.org. And if you want to become an old timer in recovery, don't use and don't die. This has been Recovery Uncovered.